0: Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology, and with the living world. Join me, Natalina Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit... NatalinaHigh.com forward slash the hive podcast and for additional books and resources check out natalinahigh.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. In this conversation I speak with Indra Adnan, an author, psychosocial therapist and political entrepreneur and a global consultant on soft power. Founder and co-initiator, together with Pat Kane, of The Alternative UK Political Platform, Indra has been writing, consulting, network building and event organising on the themes of future politics, conflict transformation, the role of the arts and integral thinking for the past 20 years. The co-lead in Bounce Beyond, a social enterprise network doing transformative work to cohere and connect the next global economies, Indra is also the author of the fascinating book The Politics of Waking Up, Power and Possibility in the Fractal Age. She has consulted the World Economic Forum, NATO and a variety of governments and she runs community collaboratories around the UK, building Citizen Action Networks or CANs to reconnect people to cosmolocal ecosystems of solutions that are available. Central to her vision of an alternative politics is the interdependency of the complex individual, the community and the planet or as she describes it, I, we, and world, which is just one of the many themes we'll be exploring in our conversation today. Indra, thank you very much for joining me in conversation today. It's great to have you on the show.
1: I'm so happy to be here.
0: So you have a really interesting history and background. And for, I think it's over two decades now, you've been consulting and writing and teaching and network building and event organising on all sorts of very interesting themes, including future politics, conflict transformation the role of the arts and integral thinking and much more. So it feels like a very timely moment to be having this conversation this particular season of the podcast. So to kick us off, can you tell us a bit about your story and how you came to be doing the work that you're doing now?
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Natalie.
0: I mean, if, I, if I, every time I try to trace it back to a first moment,
1: um, I think of two things. The first thing is that when I was three years old, I emigrated from... Holland um, and moved to England with my family. Um, my father was Indonesian and my mother was Dutch. Um, and then when we arrived in England, um, I suppose we arrived as, you know, immigrants, although my father had a, had a job here. Um, and I think that that sort of arriving in a new place, having to really download a culture, even at that age, Try to understand it, interpret it, and then appear in it um, authentically was probably what I started to do very early on in my life and i 've always seen myself as a world citizen and in fact you know bridging between my mother and my father. My father came from uh, a colonized country, my mother came from a colonial country mm. you know in, in many ways, you know my father had a Muslim family, my mother was a Roman Catholic. So, you know, I was always being a bridge, if you like, or a product of, of polarities. But I think more importantly, when I was 11, when we'd emigrated, I, we'd left my brother behind in Holland because he was already, um, he was quite a lot older than me and was already halfway through his studies. And when I was 11, he was killed in a car crash. And, oh, and that so set cool. off um, a decade for me of experiencing and facing death um, and the way that I faced it as a child was really to, if you can imagine, you know, when I fir- we first heard the news that my f- brother had been in a car accident was to sort of plead with God, you know, to save his life. That experience, you know, of really grappling with, you know, power, if you like, so- something somewhere has the power to save my brother's life, which is what I believed, you know, as a as a Roman child at a convent school, and then him, you know, dying was a huge moment for me. I think as a child, and then during my teens, seven, six of my mother's brothers and sisters died of cancer. Oh. All the way through my young life, I was really grappling with this notion of what is life? Where have these people gone? You know. And where is my agency? So my this quest, you know, where is my agency? What is my power to have any control over my life at all? And why do things fall out the way they do? Started with this, you know, very intense um, teenage life. And by the time I got to the end of my teens, I'd made up my own world religion, you know, that I was carrying around with me, as children might do, and had sort of reached, you know, my brother and my parents, my um, aunts and uncles in a sort of other universe, like parallel universes. And I was living like this um, until I got to university. And then at university, I, I, I read literature. And that really changed things for me. I began to understand much better about, um, you know, what thinking is, I suppose, and what consciousness is. And um, after that, I went to Indonesia go to my roots and I met Buddhism for the first time Mm. so that's just a sort of potted it sounds you know it sounds quite intense it was you know but I think any any person looking back at their young life will if you look carefully and see really what experiences you had that made you who you are today you'd
0: probably be able to explain a lot of what you're doing now. Wow well thank you for your candor that's a huge amount for a small person indeed any person to have to experience Um, and such an intensity of experience. I mean, death is something that we just don't, I think, certainly in Western cultures, have a cultural container to explore. So I wonder then how that search for agency and power has influenced your work now as a psychosocial therapist. How does it show up when you see clients or people that you work outside of the therapy room who are seeking some sort of way to make sense of and engage more actively with the crises that we face.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I understood was, and I think what I have brought into my social psychotherapy is that our notion of power um, is very is actually very distributed throughout our life. So we may imagine that we, as an individual human being, uh, can make an impact upon our our own lives, or upon our society or our community. But when you look at it through the lens of consciousness or you might look at it through the realms, the different realms of your life, as Buddhism teaches you to do, then you realize that you have to understand power um, in in a much broader sense. It's not simply the power that you can own, but the context of power that you are within, so to speak. So Buddhism describes the three realms as, you know, the self, the community and the planet or beyond the planet, actually, everything else beyond the self and the community. So, you know, you have some sense of agency as an individual human being. um, And that is very important because how your emotional needs show up in that realm begin to define how you act. So there's a lot of learning to do there. And a lot of people like to separate, you know, a a, a philosophy which gives power to the individual and one that gives power to the community. So there's, you know, the separation between the I and the we, for example, Mm. whereas Buddhism says that these are simply two realms of the same uh, consciousness So it's not a contradiction to be able to hold your own power. In fact, it's vital that you do have boundaries around your own sense of power, Um, but that you can also be um, a social human being. It's not a contradiction of your inner needs or your inner agency. You can be both of those things, and you can also be a planetary human being. So the way you're thinking and feeling will be affecting and have impact on the planet that you are you know living on so this connectivity between what I call the i the we and the world has actually you know become the the way that i look at everything you know whether i'm looking at a human being you know so your three realms or i might be looking at the problem with our political system or i might be looking at the climate crisis i feel that this you know, interdependency of, this, of the I, the we and the world is always an axis that we have
0: to come back to.
1: Mm.
0: I love that framework because it's also very tangible. And I think it's it's something which is easy to at least <laughs> visually grasp, um, which when we're thinking about psychological frameworks, is not something that often comes up. So I think given this knowledge, you talk about it coming from Buddhism, which is an old practice, it's not, you know, something that we've just read about now in a self-help book. Given this old knowledge that has been in existence for millennia is something that we're returning to now and that your work explores how we might transition towards a more flourishing future. Why do you think we've lost sight, so many of us on a cultural or social level, of these interconnected realms and what are some of the major factors or forces that you think have led us to a current moment of ecological, political and civilizational crisis?
1: Yeah, that's a huge question, but I think it is the important one. I suppose
0: that I would describe it as
1: <laughs> you know, a separation between the story that we are hearing constantly about the public realm Uh, which is telling us that we are powerless in the face of uh, phenomenon and the reality that we are, you know, that we feel ourselves. um, There is a sort of inner knowing that we can be effective, but it exists very much in the private realm. Um, For example, you could find yourself having power over your, Friendship circle, or maybe over relationships in your community, you can experience your power to some extent. But in the public realm, which was historically designed specifically by men, so excluding a lot of the wisdom or information that comes from the private realm, um, that that is a space that you are told constantly you have no agency in. So the decisions are made, they're out of your hands. The problems are of a kind that you can't impact. Um, You also don't have any access uh, politically, culturally, uh, to the solutions that have been available um, for decades. So if we're looking at the Looking at the reality of the climate crisis, you know, the solutions to the climate crisis have been available for for decades. Why do we not have access to them? Um, It's very much a social political structure that doesn't give us access, but also doesn't give us uh, the ability to vote directly on the issues. We're being asked all the time to vote on things that seem somehow... um, you know, can't address the issues that we care most about um, in a direct way. So there's so much dysfunction in the design, Natalie, of the public space that doesn't match our inner held reality of a relational life. Mm. And it's this complete mismatch between the stories that we're being told, mostly through um, decades, you know, all our lives we've been educated into this schism if you like but our newspapers also hold the you know for want of a better word an establishment understanding of where power lies and it does not lie with us.
0: So let's dig into the politics then because I mean there's so many roots into this conversation but you've written a fascinating book called The Politics of Waking Up Power and Possibility in the Fractal Age and um, Let's start, first of all, with the intriguing title. Can you tell us what you mean by fractal in this context, whether it's a fractal age or fractal politics? And then we'll, we'll take it from there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that scientists or, you know, there are experts in what fractal means, but the way that I'm describing fractal here is really how patterns of change can arise in, in small places um so for example something i talk a lot about in the book is the uh spontaneous emergence of what i call community agency networks so taking a step back a little bit you know we've been in this what i call a revolution for over 3 decades now and that really coincides with the birth of the internet mm-hmm. and when when we suddenly had access to you know, infinite amounts of information, but also access to each other. We could uh, exchange, we could mobilize, we could simply find each other. It's amazing how a hashtag can help you to find your tribe in an instant. Something, a global tribe, in fact, something that could just never have happened, in even in our imaginations, before this revolution began. So with this revolution beginning 30 years ago, um, something that, that, that has always happened started to really accelerate, which is that communities were able to come together more coherently, small communities, place-based ones, but in what I call a cosmolocal way. So the cosmolocalism of these communities is that when you have access to the internet, it's not simply that you're coming together with your local resources, you know, meeting each other in person, all of which is absolutely vital to this um, movement. But you're also bringing into that space the knowledge, the tools, the practices, you know, the blueprints, the prototypes from all over the world. You know, you, you're bringing that into your local space. It's no longer really local. It's connected globally. Mm. And uh, it's, a, it's a term that was that was actually first coined by Michelle Bowens who, who, who started the peer-to-peer movement. Um, but it's a fantastic term, cosmolocal um, because it simply describes this new way of being human and of being a community. So these communities started to um, emerge and, and appear in, in many, many different forms. I mean, you might think about transition towns or eco-villages or um, fearless cities or all forms of cooperatives. I mean, there are so many which bring together in a community, a full ecology of possible change. Mm. And that's what I call, these are fractals of a possible global network of whole systems moving into relationship with each other. So the fractal nature is more like a pattern of connections and relationships emerging that then find each other or... Notice each other, you know, arising and emerging at the same time. Noticing each other because of your similar pattern, and the, this really points at the fact that when something ideal, like a like a good prototype of a community that can, um, you know, bring to the to 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 wherever you are a whole system change, um, that this doesn't—it's it, not necessarily a question of scaling. You know how Mm. people, when they see a good thing, they say, well, how are we going to scale it? But a fractal emergence is really one of noticing, connecting and sharing, you know, where you have got many uh, things in common already. And I mean, I'm sure you'll, you'll know this yourself. You're probably part of something that's, you know, we're all part of something that was copied and replicated very fast because of this fractal nature. So many things in common but just enough difference that you have something new to share and as you share it your 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 you know uh, evolving that that that
0: pattern does that make sense that makes wonderful sense and it's it's um it's also very relieving to hear that because i think one of the things that you mentioned there sort of this assumption that we have to scale things in a particular way that that scaling is often um you know when we talk about it in business terms it often follows a particular track and i think it comes up quite a lot. I certainly use that term, you know, how, how do we create deep lasting change that we can scale swiftly? And maybe that's the wrong question. And so I think this, this question of creating change in smaller pockets, and then there's almost like a resonance between one pocket and the next. And I know from your newsletter on thealternative.org, that, you know, the Daily Alternative, that there is a wealth of evidence of these sorts of patterns of change arising, and to give people a sense of progress and of possibility by looking at what's already happening, means that then we're empowered to be a, a greater agents of our own change in a local context, which takes out a lot of the sort of the fear or the the saviour hat that we can put on. And go well, I must save the world, and and so I think there's there's an interesting kind of I don't know, it, it, yeah, it soothes and empowers. I think I love that you're
1: saying that, Leslie, because. For some some people, this kind of form of agency, you know, there's nothing more important to them that they should be the first and the only person mm. doing what they're doing. But that's still, to me, a, a certain kind of dynamic which I feel we're shifting away from. Because, mm. and, and, and and you know, I'm I'm going to I'm going to call this a more feminine uh, kind of yin idea of what. Uh, it, uh, what progress is and it's really to be able to reveal what is already there or what was always there rather than to only emphasize what one can innovate or what one can you know what is new and what what's the tip of the arrow if you see what I mean so I, oh, I'm like God. you I get a lot of comfort <laughs> from s- seeing that what I'm seeing I'm not alone yes others are doing this too oh good I I don't have to be the savior <laughs> of this whole space that's comfort to me others will immediately turn away and say oh well if i'm not doing if i'm not the leader in this i'm not interested you know so it's it's not a it's it's a, it is it requires a different way of looking and um seeing but i think with this 10 year window that we have kind of agreed that we have in terms of the climate crisis i think whatever's going fastest is what we really need to witness
0: it's interesting isn't it i was talking with um Indy Johar recently, and also Rob Hopkins. And one of the things that comes up time and again, as you just mentioned, is this kind of this shift towards our entanglement. Also with Anthea Lawson, we talked about this. And so in some ways, there is a lot of truth to be sort of taken from the fact that it doesn't really matter where we start. I think this is also the thing that I can tie myself up in knots with is, you know, where am I best place to make impact? Where can I best be of service? And at, at the end of the day, if you think it doesn't have to be all things to all people. It doesn't have to be the right intervention. It has to be, what can you do on your little piece of jigsaw that connects with all of the others on the board and just take it one step at a time from there. And I really like the framing of the the feminine, the yin side, because it also calls to mind the aspect that we often neglect, which is around reflecting, taking pause, uh, resting as well, and seeing what's possible in the fertile void if we just take a moment. And so maybe actually this is a nice moment then to talk about what your thoughts are around soft power which I know is something that you teach about can you tell us about what that is and how it shows up it's an interesting curve actually because when I
1: I've got to a point in my life where you you know I think when I was in my early 20s I was thinking about peace a lot Mm. and whether or not peace really works as a word, in in fact, um, because it seemed to imply its opposite all the time, so war and peace, um, and whether peace was something we could ever really promote because it seemed to divide communities. Like, you know, whenever I was in a a peace conference or something, it would only attract people who were also in that mode. Um, And so I started to look for new words to describe how we could get to a, let's say, flourishing future of one kind or another. And in that search, I came across Joseph Nye's idea of soft power. So he talked about, um, this is a particular moment in history that he was referring to when America had to concede that it didn't have the power that it thought that it had. It had just lost the Vietnam War. And, um, you know, this is the one, you know, the, one of the two superpowers of the world at the time could not beat one of the smallest countries in the world mm. in that sense of having the military strength or the financial strength to, to win. Um, and Joseph Nye uh, very smartly uh, said, yeah, but even if we can't win with hard power, we are winning and will always win with soft power. And so I wanted to know what soft power was. And he described it as the power of attraction. Hmm. The power of attraction meaning what is it that you have, mostly at a national level, he was talking now, as a nation, that attracts people towards you, that then, therefore, because you're now in relationship with people, you have some influence over their behavior. So um, in in America, this is really described as the American dream. So the Hmm. American dream is America's soft power, and what does that mean? It means the idea that you can uh, go from rags to riches, that anybody can become president, that there is there is an essential freedom in the in the states, um, and that you will live a life that you earn. You know, so this American dream was carried by certain institutions like like Hollywood, for example. You know, Disney is always carrying this notion of the American dream. So this was a whole new world, really, of where power lies, which I studied um, with Joseph Nye for a bit, and I wrote about this quite a lot for The Guardian. But I also began to see that there's a more... that he was describing in quite a masculine institutional way. But uh, the way I was beginning to see it was more and more the power of storytelling, the power of narrative... And a story can change your reality more than money can. So hard power ultimately is the weaker part of the hard power and soft power. Mm -hmm. Soft power is like the paper that wraps the stone. Um, And so the more that we moved into this era of the revolution, you saw, and Joseph and I was pointing at this, what he called the era of the non-state actor. So the state had a certain... Kind of power, which was largely in the imagination of most people, it was hard power, guns, money, the ability to force outcomes. But increasingly, any kind of person could have soft power and was having a direct effect on how a country uses its hard power. So I'll give you a couple of examples on that. You know, one that one couldn't avoid was, you know, the effect, for example, that ISIS had just a small group of people who made a very powerful video and then, you know, on the strength of that, ended up changing the foreign policies of, of major countries. This idea that a story can change outcomes then shifted the whole way of looking at how do we change our... Future, you know, how do we change our future? And I think you'll 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 know, as I do, that there are many people now actively trying to shift the narrative. But um, from a soft power point of view, um, it doesn't. You can't just shift it. It takes quite a lot of patient change in the way a culture or a country or a person operates before the sort of reputation. And therefore, the narrative of that thing shifts. So, um, yeah, I hope I hope that that sort of describes what I what I mean by soft power, or how I think it's playing its role today.
0: I like that you're bringing in the idea of storytelling there, because it's one of these things that gets talked about a lot. But I think when you're talking about it at the level of the nation state, uh, and then how do we change enough narratives? at a smaller level for them to have an impact on the meta-narrative. This is, I guess, this is the work of what many activists are engaging in now. And actually it ties in, so you write that to get somewhere, we will need to seize on the new language, build new systems and structures, but we'll also need new ontologies, new ways of being and feeling that help us to put new markers at every stage of the journey. So thinking about these new ontologies, narratives and ways of being, do you have a sense of or examples of what these might look like?
1: Well, yes. I mean, I I think that, you know, if you look at the, going back to this idea of the private-public divide, maybe that's just a good place to start. It's certainly not the end Mm -hmm. of it. But this sense that we know ourselves in a certain way at home, or in our relationships with our friends or family. But that somehow we're required to act differently in the public space. That's the kind of divide that I see shifting now. So, you know, even 15, 20 years ago, the notion of emotional intelligence, for example, Mm. was quite new. And, you know, all the work that Daniel Goleman, well, I shouldn't reference him necessarily, because that was on the back of a lot of other people's work as well. But this notion of emotional intelligence um, or structural intelligence, you know, how we now understand ourselves slowly through what is just a series of pennies dropping in a way um, is something that wouldn't have happened 20, 30 years ago. Um, And also, as more women have moved into the public space over the last 20, 30 years, you know, an acceleration of that, We're just beginning now to see that there is a different kind of language moving into institutions as a result of that. So for a long time, you know, I I experienced it myself. I don't know um, if you did, Natalie. That you know, I I found myself required to speak in a way that was not natural to me when I was in the public space, Mm
0: -hmm. and that made it
1: hard. To be heard, or made it hard to fully express myself. But increasingly, that's not the case anymore. Increasingly, I feel that you know, women, or also other previously excluded um, intelligences, if you like, are now feeling the confidence to be able to hold the space in a new way. Different questions are being asked. Different languages brought. Different permissions are given for a different conversation to happen. Hmm. So even even in the mainstream news, this has been developing, although the clash, I would say, with, you know, old worlds and new worlds appears, um, you know, in things like cu- culture wars, you know, so that's like a name given to this, div- you know, to where the divides appear. Um, and in a way, even naming it as culture wars is a way of trying to suppress it. But mm-hmm. I feel as if, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. And what we'll be talking about and what we have been talking about more and more over the last, over these, over these you know, we're in the middle of this emergence now, this changing feel, this changing set of inquiries, what's allowed to be said, um, we're, in the mid-
0: we're in the middle of it, but it's very, very different um, from even 10 years ago, I would say. It's intriguing how rapidly the conversations have changed. Um, I'd written a book, came out in September last year called Business Unusual. And one of the themes that came up time and again with the business leaders I was interviewing was that even three or four years ago, if you mentioned purpose or meaning at a board meeting, you'd get laughed out of the room. That's in three years. I think, isn't it interesting like, that these conversations were being had as As you express, you know there's, there's sort of the the private sphere and then everything that goes beyond that. they were being had in in private. These are conversations that are not new. you know the Greeks wrote about it way back, and yet it seems like we're at this point in which we're giving ourselves permission to connect the dots in a way that was not even conceivable before. what What do you think has given rise to this now? I mean, do you have a sense of what's allowed for or created this change?
1: Yeah, I mean, in a sense, we're all searching for answers now because we're much more aware of a crisis. Mm -hmm. So there's a sort of openness to, well, I wouldn't say, you know, it's black and white. It's not as if we flipped from being closed to suddenly being open. But let's say a gradual more open to the idea that we don't know all the answers and we might be open to something else. So that's part of it. But part of it also is the growing confidence, I think, of people who have been excluded. It's almost as if through various uprisings, you know, around the world, uh, this is, again, the fractal nature of change. You know, so, f- for, for for example, you know, being able to witness what happened, you know, with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement made a huge difference to um, not only Black people around the planet, but also other marginalized people, to feel this might be a moment for being able to speak my truth and be heard. Mm. And it's caused a lot of disturbance, you know, amongst even people who, interestingly, thought that they already understood everything Mm -hmm. or that they already had this moral framework. Even they have been disturbed by something that feels to me like a new understanding of where strength lies. So strength, as I said, used to lie in force, you know, the ability to have numbers or the ability to have, uh, you know, know, money would be a force, you know, or the hard power, things that used to hold sway are being undone, actually, by claims such as, you know, my vulnerability counts. Hmm. Now, vulnerability has become a new source of strength in the public space, (laughs) You know, someone like Greta Thunberg or, you know, anybody who is um, attacked, you know, um, that is clearly somebody that lacks resources being attacked has some sort of power that wasn't reckoned with before Mm. because of the way that uh, now feeling and emotion is given, um, you know, is, 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 is given its given attention, you know, we give attention to these things now. And whatever we give attention to actually becomes the currency of this time. So, you know, it'd be very interesting to see how history tells it as progress. Um, But to be living in it is, you know, it's... um, it's not easy.
0: You
1: you know, at at any given time, any one of us will, you know, think that we are right about something or that we always knew that and that we were always on the right side of something and then find that, in fact, we are the person that suddenly is being accused of not recognizing somebody else's vulnerability or somebody else's Mm -hmm. right to be standing alongside you or... So it's very, it's a very disruptive time, but through this disruption, I feel um, slowly uh, this new ontology, this new way of being in the public space, is is absolutely
0: taking shape and becoming established. In my view, I like that. It's also very, um, it's hopeful. And I know not everyone likes the word hope. I quite like the word hope, bedded and firmly grounded in things that we can look at in terms of what's possible, but. I think it's important to have a sense of change being possible and that for the first time we're asking questions that weren't possible before. So you briefly mentioned earlier community agency networks and one of the things that you write about is how the success of these groups relies in in large part to our access on a global commons, which kind of connects back to soft power and also the ways that we relate to our wider living web. So can you explain what the global commons is and perhaps how we can protect and contribute to it?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, again, there's many people who have studied this and are really focused on this more than I am. And I would recommend, you know, the peer-to-peer community and the global commons community. But the way that I would describe it, and it's important to me that I try to describe it in ways that are very accessible to these community groups on the ground, is really our natural shared resources. So if you like, when you think about the fact that if you, in the past, you had an idea, you might patent that idea, and then it becomes, you know, difficult to access. Um, people have to pay to use your idea. The, glo- the global commons is very much about open source ideas, open source technology, um, open source methods, tools, uh, the ability to be able to speak to each other directly um, wherever you are in the world, uh, finding common language for things, um, seeing seeing commonality in, in, in what we do. So the global commons really looks at human and social resources as belonging to everyone. Now, the reality is much of that isn't available to everyone. Um, and so the work of a lot of technology is to to reinvent, you know, some of the things that are not accessible to us easily um, and to, um, you know, make them accessible to, to everyone. As a person working on the ground, for example, you in the past you might have thought, I can't get access to, for example... Uh, the data that exists about my community mm. now there are people working hard assiduously on breaking open the things that contain the data that would that you should you know have you have a right to it 's data about your community, how your community spends money, how your community uses power, you know how your community responds to things you know on the one hand. You know, Mark Zuckerberg holds all of this data about the community to his company and, you know, sells it to advertisers. Mm. How do we reclaim all of that, which belongs to us? So that's the the global commons, essentially, which is being generated in many, many different ways, but technology does play a, a large part in that. If you are a community on the ground in a place Um, Having access to the tools, the practices, the ideas, uh, the technology that somebody in the United States might have without ever needing to travel is a huge boon. Mm. And also it means that the people in your community who are already working on that um, would be recognized uh, within this community agency network. So, you know you don't end up constantly reinventing the wheel. I think there's a kind of popular idea that anything local is going to be small and irrelevant. And this new way of being local, cosmolocal shows that you know it can be as relevant or I can shift the story about uh, you can have a breakthrough uh, coming from anywhere in, in, in the world now. And have an impact on the global commons.
0: I love that idea. So, if you're thinking about what, to you, a shared generative future might look like, how do you? How do you? And it's a massive question, but how do you begin to answer that? What are the key things that you would want to see?
1: Well, it, 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 there's many layers of that, Natalie. And, and maybe the, the best thing to do would be to, to, to take it back to this IWE world axis. Because you know, to be regenerative is—it's a fantastic word—and what you, you perhaps wonder why it just did not appear before. But I mm. think the reason that it's appeared now as, a, as such a blanket term is—is—is is, is because we're now willing to think about things in their most natural terms. So, something that was sustainable, for example, let's compare it to sustainable would would really keep the old system going you know just make it um able to continue something that is regenerative you know asks you to ch- you know to change your ways of working so that everything you're doing has some relationship to um you know to nature and the way that nature regenerates itself so nature really is the model that we're thinking o- about when we think of regenerative, because it, you know, it 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 has the seeds, if you like, um, and it has the cycles that ensure uh, it will continue. It doesn't have to reach out for something else to to be able to continue. So um, the same would be for a human being. You know, we are built to reproduce ourselves, um, and as long as we can get the basics. Uh, Well, actually, it's it's not simply material needs. We'll get into that in a minute. But, you know, material and emotional needs met uh, all the time. We can, you know, we can continue to reproduce ourselves uh, and evolve. Knowing that is at the heart of the regenerative system, you know, really gives every individual the idea that the way they look after themselves, the way that they seek their own uh, health, and by that I don't mean simply bodily health, but mental health, spiritual health, um, becomes core to the whole system, being able to become regenerative. So as a human being, you don't only have material needs. We're not simply homo economicus. That's the story from the old system. We are indeed what I would describe as biopsychosocial spiritual entities with given emotional needs as well as given emotional resources. Now, when you start to think of a human being in that way and how do you get your emotional as well as your material needs met, that really describes what kind of a society we need to build Mm. to help you have a good context for your flourishing. So just briefly, um, I use the human givens model and it talks about you know, the need for, they're not the obvious needs actually, but a need for status, a need for belonging, a need for autonomy, the need for meaning and purpose, the need for privacy. There's a set amount, there's a set, in a sense, identifiable given needs that we have to get met. When we don't get those met, our mental health becomes compromised and that's where things start to go wrong. Now, We can't imagine just reordering a society, right, to get those needs met. But in a community, you can start to design to get those needs met for the people living in that community. So then you start to redesign your community along these lines. And this is where the prototype, if you like, starts to emerge. And this is where the community agency networks um, are models of how a better civilization could arise. Um, And then with that, the way that you treat your resources, the way that you treat your energy flow, the way that you treat um, food and health uh, become, you know, small microcosms
0: of how we need to do that at a planetary level. So for, for those of us who are listening and thinking, I'd love to get involved in that, what's a place that you might suggest people look to to start or maybe literature alongside your wonderful book and your talks?
1: There's different kinds of cans. There's the ones that I would say we've given that generic term to that already existed well before we were looking at them specifically. You know, so if, if you could, if you, if you wanted to be involved, for example, in a transition town or an eco village or a fearless city, these are some of the terms, some of the brands, if you like, of cans that already exist. But increasingly we are, uh, starting and prototyping cans ourselves. Um, and when I say ourselves, I'm talking about all the co-creators that are part of the uh, the alternative. So there's, there's sort of 900 people at the moment who are thinking one way or another about starting cans. Um, and we're in a process right at this moment of um, developing new practices using... Um, something called the U-Lab process. Um, this is invented by uh, Otto Scharmer. So it's, it's happening all over the world. So there are hundreds of communities now all over the world using a process to try to see how they can originate this kind of a formation where, where they're living.
0: I'm going to go and check that out. That sounds absolutely fascinating. So before I move into the last few questions... And maybe this is too big a question to ask at this point in the conversation, but the way that you seem to approach this challenge of how do we create something that's more supportive of flourishing of not just individuals, but communities and systems, it's a very interconnected approach. It's a very, you know, even the use of the word fractal, there's a sense of resonance between the smaller actions and the larger actions and responses. One of the things I'm curious to ask you is how we might move beyond more dualistic, ways of thinking that kind of either or black and white towards something that's perhaps more complex and complete in terms of the view of the problems that we face.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, how do we move beyond them? I think it's probably to pay attention.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I would say it's definitely a human, it's kind of the human condition to perceive things in a binary way, you know, Mm -hmm. so night, day, backwards, forwards live, die. I mean, we have binaries for everything. However, if you look more closely, you know, the distance between, for example, night and day, you know, is dawn and dusk. You know, there's a lot more. There's a there's a huge continuum between these things. So by paying attention to the binaries that exist in your life, you can draw a continuum between the, the two things. Unfortunately, you know the action of our media is to is to is to um, you know polarize is to make the binaries ever more extreme mm. and it's simply uh, you know a business model for them you know the more that they excite uh, fear or you know a response or some sort of triggering around these binaries, the more newspapers they sell, the more attention they get so you do really have to reclaim the binary. That you're experiencing for yourself um, and acknowledge that, you know, in the public space, there's money to be made out of polarization, mm. right? Mm. But to reclaim it yourself, it's not to say there is no such thing as a binary. I think that's very important. Um, but this is where it comes back to me to, com- the diff- you know, to conflict transformation. So, or the difference, let's say, between conflict resolution and conflict transformation. So, conflict resolution would try to find some sort of middle way and you know between two opposite things and usually requires uh, some form of compromise you know mm-hmm. it's a zero sum game you have to give up something in order to meet the other side whereas the conflict transformation approach is more that you interrogate the binary you you question what it's bringing into the space what it, what needs are implied and then think And allow something more creative to happen, you know, to give rise to something that would answer the needs of all of those things. So, you know, this illusion, for example, of left and right, I call it an illusion because I can see how manufactured it is. Um, You know, you might ask or look for actively, what are the needs in common or what are the things that are being expressed? You know, what is being yearned for Hmm. across this continuum? And therefore, what, you know, what kind of situation could you imagine that would get these needs met at both ends of the spectrum? And I'll give you a quick example of that. Mm. Um, I remember seeing once a Facebook post by a a lever in a Brexit campaign talking about how important it was that we learn to grow our own vegetables and we source our own, you know, power here and uh, we become more self-sufficient and for a moment, I thought I was reading something from Extinction Rebellion because it was the same demand, actually, <laughs> that we should become more autonomous, be more resilient, become more self-sufficient. When you look with those sorts of eyes, you know, you'll see that you don't need to be defeated by the binaries. It's just you have to pay attention and then transcend them. And then believe me, as soon as you've transcended it, new ones appear because that is how it is. That's is what it means to be human. We do live like that. But this constant paying attention, seeing the continuum, transcending the opposites, and then, you know, that's a, that's an action, that's a way of being in the world, really.
0: And actually, that beautifully answers what was going to be my next question about practices that are invaluable to you, because I think seeing the world and challenges we face with those eyes, first of all, it's a very intentional practice, but also, I imagine, brings you closer to the deeper needs that people have. And with that, a possibility for creative change that maybe wasn't there before. So I've got just three last questions. And at this point, I usually ask people whether there's a story or a quote that most ignites them. But I know that this actually is not the way in which you've explored your learning. A lot of people devour books and podcasts and stuff. And I'm sure that's a part of your repertoire. But can you tell us a bit about the teachers you've chosen and why, like the the relationship that you hinted at in our pre-interview chat? (laughs) The green room chat, yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. I I, I hope your listeners will forgive me for being a bit crude in this because um, I know that sometimes I've sounded like I'm calling people out when I say that I'm not really inclined to quote books or people, you know, when I'm thinking about um, what makes something right or not right. And partly Mm. it's because I think I was in flight from... A world in which I was always being told, uh, as so-and-so says, or as it says in this book, or this quote proves, which seemed to me to set up a whole system of um, received and acknowledged authority. That I didn't at that time have access to, and so it just cut me out of the conversation. Now I'm not saying that I'm, a, I'm I wasn't intellectual, and or that I didn't get an education. It just wasn't the way that I learned when I was going through my own my own growth. Uh, you know, in fact, throughout my life, I I always, and I think this started with my Buddhist practice, or maybe it started earlier on with my with with the role my father played in my life. But I always um, was wanting and you know, willing to learn from a teacher or, you know, and always looking for my next teacher. Hmm. And in a Buddhist practice, this could be somebody who was just, you know, the person who who ran your local group, so to speak, you know, or somebody that you would actively seek out for guidance. But it was always this idea that in a conversation with another person, if you decide that you're going to learn from this conversation – then you change in response to this conversation. So you're always learning from the person that you decide to pay attention to. Mm. And uh, for me, this has continued throughout my life. But if I look in big, um, you know, looking back historically, what surprises me, uh, I might surprise uh, listeners, you know, because I've said a lot about the feminine, is that all of my teachers until now have been men, I would say. (laughs) So um, that's partly because they were the people I could find in the public sphere who I was trying to learn from. So my own Buddhist uh, teachers were men. The person who I learned about conflict transformation from Johann Galtung or learning about soft power from Joseph Nye, um, it's because they were the people available in the public sphere. But they also really helped me to understand because I always heard and learned, and then thought more. And I realized later that I was, you know, that the action was to bring a more feminine perspective to what had already been said. So now I have a much greater sense of a feminine body of knowledge that sits alongside my male mentors, um, having learned from, but also initiating something that sits alongside it. And even as I'm speaking actually i realise that that's a lot of the action that i that i incorporate all the time this sense that there is a parallel body of knowledge coming into being that doesn't just follow you know in a straight line the evolution of thinking but is prepared to stand alongside and say yes i recognize that i learned from that but there is also this you know something else and this parallel these parallel bodies of knowledge, to me now, getting back to the politics of it, would be the way the current system is held, you know, through, through government and through the party political system. And now this almost parallel body of knowledge that's arising from people in their communities uh, in a very different relationship to, um, to the world sitting alongside each other as two things that need to be in a dialogue rather than one trying to overcome the other. That's very strong in my sense of what is now possible.
0: That's wonderful. Indra, thank you so much. Um, For everyone who wants to find out more, where can they find you online?
1: Yeah, so um, thealternative.global is our platform. And from there, you'll be able to launch off into many, many different forms of participation or... starting things up by
0: yourself Lovely, and of course your book The Politics of Waking Up Power and Possibility in the Fractal Age Indra, thank you so much for your time today Thank you, Natalie You took me a lot of places (laughs) (laughs) and it was fun, thank you Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach New Ears. And for more information, you can visit natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Natalina High. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.